where we are actually, a suburb of Jerusalem. Hanavi Inn. If it sounds familiar, well it should be, because Jesus took us there. In fact, he took, remember those disciples on the Emmaus Road? He took them through Torah, Hanavi'im, and Ha-Ketvifim. Luke 24, lost on the English reader, because we pass over it. Jesus taught from Torah, the prophets, and the writings of the Psalms. Actually, that's the threefold structure of the Hebrew Bible. So what is the first activity of the risen Lord? It's actually a hermeneutical exercise. He interprets the entire Hebrew Bible through himself. Guiding them through, because if you look the spine of a modern Hebrew Bible, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Torah, the guidance, the teaching, Nevi'im, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writing. Now, it's not enough, and this is why I love the challenge that comes from Heshon. It's not enough, he says, to think about the prophets. We must think through the prophets. And that's what we're going to try to do for a little while this morning. We've been trying to share some of the insights that come from these men. And a man, particularly of Heschel's ability, who spent his life studying the prophets, he concluded it is not enough to read the Bible for its wisdom. We must pray the Bible to comprehend its claims. It's not simply a book to be read, but a drama in which to participate. Now, if we can get this sense, remember we've said there's no word for history, they've only the word for memory, because as you and I open from Genesis to Malachi, that's part of our story, that's part of the big story that we're in. Never feel uncomfortable with that word story. It does not necessarily mean anything that is fictitious, anything that's been humanly made. If you want to change it to narrative, well, you'll hear this word very commonly today. <clears throat> you will hear it in the news, virtually every news bulletin. There is the Jahidist narrative. There's the ISIS narrative. There is the, you know, the gay narrative. Everybody wants to be in a narrative. And that's precisely where we want to find ourselves in the most exciting and the definitive meta-narrative. The big story of what God is doing. And I want you to get a sense of excitement. Now you've got to do this yourself. When you've got a little bit of time. Just sit quietly and open your Bible. And begin to think about what you have actually lying open in your knee. And you open and you begin to read those very first words. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And then just let your fingers do the walking through a few hundred pages. And let your mind just absorb this fact because at the very end, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's the big story that you and I are in. We are caught somewhere between Genesis 1 and Revelation 21. I tend, you've probably gathered it, to think visually. And as I open the Bible, I tend to think, you know, in Genesis 1 I'm putting my foot onto a roadway that is going to climax where? In a new heaven and in a new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. We are somewhere along that roadway. And as you travel that roadway, you go through the ups and downs, the vicissitudes, the digressions of Israel, kind of through that orange patch. Then you come to the new covenant. We are somewhere in that green section. That roadway, you can call it redemptive revelation. You can call it God's unfolding drama. Whatever. But I want us to get a sense of where we are in this big picture. Because when we go back to the particularity of the locality where we work, it's very easy to get buried. We need to remind ourselves at times of the bigger, bigger unfolding drama. And that's why I'm going to suggest to you, take home with you a new set of spectacles I introduced you to bifocals yesterday. I want to give you a set of trifocals today. Now these trifocals are so very useful. I have found them invaluable when I read the whole Bible. And when you're reading the whole Bible, then you have to learn to wrestle with the fact that in the course of reading the entire Bible, taking it seriously, one, you're going to discover there are elements of profound continuity. And that we have something, you know, this, our story started, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with creation. It did not start when Jesus parachuted in as a Protestant to the Reformation. It didn't even start with incarnation. It actually started in the very depths of God's, the divine initiative. When he gave those patriarchs promises. That's the big story we're in. And there are elements of profound unbroken continuity. But equally, as we responsibly read the Bible, there are elements of discontinuity. Because when you come to the very new covenant, you've got to recognize, well hey, what makes it new? Because as I make this journey right through the Bible, I move from mystery through to revelation. I move from promise through to fulfillment. I move from glory to even greater glory. I move from past days to now the last days. There is movement and there are elements of discontinuity. But above all, we're moving towards a climax where there is to come 
a fullness, a richness of consternation reality that at the minute it hasn't even entered into the minds of the best of our imaginations. What's in store? There is something so absolutely stupendous to come. So bear that in mind. As we read, keep these trifocals on. Because we've got to wrestle with all three elements. If you just look through one of those particular angles, you'll not get a fully representative picture. Learn to read them all. Now, as we're doing it, here we sit, and as it were, as new covenant believers, living in the light of the fact that in Jesus, God is interrupted into history, we're looking still forward. We're looking forward towards a consummation when Jesus will return. And look, I really am not getting in the kind of the intricacies, the politics of all the kind of ins and outs of a lot of the exegetical acrobatics that surround the world of kind of eschatology. Oh, spare us from the amount of division that has caused. I want us to capture the hope that's there irrespective of the individual quirks and differences of interpretation. Grab the biblical hope. And that hope is very clear. We are looking towards a consummation, a climax, inextricably involved with the coming of Jesus and these promises of revelation. Now what I want you to think about, it is not just us who are actually looking to that consummation. The prophets of Israel are still awaiting the consummation of many of the things that they said. Think about it that way. Yes, I know, we're living at a stage now where many have not accepted Jesus as Messiah. But that doesn't abrogate the fact that many of these ancient promises that the, promise, the prophets gave, we're waiting for as they are. So what I'm going to suggest to you Try this. And again, this will take a little bit of time to unpack. So, take the time. Don't simply look back at the prophets of Israel. Don't look back at their faces. But rather, ask for the grace to go behind them. And sit on their shoulders. And look ahead with them. Just try that. Not simply us looking back, but us standing with them looking forward. There is a, a very interesting rabbinic parable or question is asked, who sees the furthest? A giant or a dwarf? A wee man like me, doesn't see far. My students always call me the wee man. So who sees the furthest? Of course, it's obvious, isn't it obvious? The giant has got the height. He sees the best. Ah, but, says the rabbi, what about the dwarf who sits on the shoulders of the giant? He sees even further. In Chartres Cathedral in France, there is a very famous stained glass window for you of the four major prophets of Israel. And on their shoulders sit tiny men. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. 
So bear that in mind. We're going to sit for a little while on giants' shoulders. Because here were these prophets much earlier than us. We're coming much further down the road. We're late arrivals. We are late arrivals. So what can we see with them? So come with me into the mind of a prophet for a little while. I had a sixth form literature teacher who used to look at me quite intensely and say, Maxima, I'd love to see your brain in a saucer. <laughs> now, by the way, that's quite a challenge because if our brains were in saucers, what would we be looking at? How many Christians would be looking at little Plato's, little Socrates, and little Aristotle's instead of little Jesus's, little Paul's, and little Moses's? Because how many have subtly imbibed a Greek dualistic way of thinking? without even stopping to question. It's good to look at your brain sometimes. Now, enter into the mind, this Hebrew mind, where you begin to discover that this is a mindset when we get into the inner history of the people of God, the inner history of God's relationship with Israel. Isn't it interesting? It's been a history of waiting for God and waiting for his arrival. There is so much waiting in the Bible. It's a healthy corrective to a lot of kind of this spontaneity that's going around today where it's sort of miracle a minute, thrill a second stuff. White suits, glimming, you know, glittering teeth and, and lovely hair pieces. It's all a thrill a minute stuff. What about the inordinate amount of waiting and longing and agonizing in the Bible? There's a lot of it from Abraham right through. And don't forget even John writing from Patmos. When did we ever hear a, a sermon on, on Revelation 1? Join me in the kingdom and in the patient endurance. Doesn't say come and join me for thrill a minute stuff. Come and join me in the patient endurance. And this is where we begin to see, you see, true biblical patience does not mean waiting until things change. This is Marva Dawn. If you haven't come across Marva Dawn, Canadian writer, a wonderful lady. She has suffered so much with her body, but oh, her mind. Ah. Marva Dawn. Marva J. Dawn. Where she says, true biblical patience doesn't mean waiting until things change, but learning to wait because of who God is, even when the situation does not change. <coughs> This is something that the prophets see. Because as she goes on to see, say, we simply cannot understand the mysteries of God. Certain things cannot be revealed to us because maybe we can't handle them. And we have to say, this is too big for us. But irrefutably, we see that the prophets of Israel give us a vision for the future. Now, as I say, I'm not getting bogged down into all these, this myriad of interpretations. But rather, we've come to see, and again listen to the, the wonderful insight of Heschel, it is through Judaism, I'd rather say biblical thinking, it is through the Bible, it's through the Hebrew scriptures that the eschatological dimension 
which is oriented to, towards the future and towards the end of earthly history has come into the thought of humanity. And if you want to speak words of comfort and direction and meaning into our broken world and its lostness, you're not going to find any words much richer, much better, much deeper than the words particularly of Isaiah. Because the prophets spoke into devastatingly troubled times and they gave people hope. But what is very striking is that when you read in the prophets of Israel, their hope was never simply totally ethereal, spiritual and otherworldly because they never conceived of a bodiless and an earthless future. Their view of salvation included a recreation, a renewal, a redemption of everything that God had made. And that their concept of salvation was not simply escaping this earth and floating in some ethereal state, you know, plucking harps. It was robustly real. And that's what I want to tease out a little bit today. Because sometimes we've been afraid of that. And I was too, simply because we've been exposed to the fact that groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses have taken <coughs> topics like this and I believe distorted it. With the result that now Christians, Orthodox Christians, are scared to address this area. So as we begin to explore it a little bit, let's do it with three goals in mind. One, that we want to more and more give glory to God. Two, understand more clearly the particular role of his Christ, the Lord Jesus. And in so doing, try to clarify the text for ourselves. So let's do it this way. And let's just for a wee minute stand behind the prophet Isaiah. Come behind Isaiah and try to look forward with him. Remember, the very word Isaiah is related to a, a Hebrew family of words. Isaiah is related to Joshua, Yehoshua, uh, Yeshua, all doing all to do with the word and the concept of salvation. And as we explore Isaiah, oh, Isaiah is quite mind-blowing. Because look at his vision, look at the scope. There's no narrow parochial myopic vision here. He introduces us to a God who spans that entire roadway. Look at what he says about his God, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. I would call the book of Isaiah my Amazon book. I love it. Because just at a click, you go from A to Z. Isaiah is taking us from the Alpha to the Omega, from the Aleph to the Tav, to the A to the Z. Now, this is what I want you to do. Think about it. Open your Bible, and as you think, what lies between those two covers? Not simply a little manual as to how an individual gets to heaven. That's there. 
But in the context of the revelation of a cosmic drama that sweeps you from the very beginning to the very end. This is a drama of cosmic proportions that we are involved in. When you and I go back to our locality, to the particularity of where we were, how we were, and who we are. Remember in the midst of all that particularity, with all its dignity. It is a particularity in the midst of a cosmic drama of such huge proportions. This is why you need the two hands. On the one hand, yes, there's me with my gifts and my talents in my place at my time. That's all important. But at the same time, all of that particularity is in the context of a drama of such epic proportions. Christians get out of the trenches. Christians get out of their boxes. Christians say goodbye to their myopia. And get a vision of the bigness of what you are involved. The next time when you're lonely walking through that army barracks feeling isolated. The next time when you're walking down the street or preaching and feel isolated. Know that that particular experience is part of something so very much bigger. And remind yourself of that. You see, most Christians live in Lilliput. We really live in Lilliput. We have grown up on the streets and in the back alleys of Lilliput. Because we've become so individualized, so parochialized, so denominationalized, so spiritualized that we have forgotten the big drama. That's why these prophets lift you up. Look at Isaiah. And he focuses us on the final point. The omega point. You can't read Isaiah. Take Isaiah 40 to 55. And work your way through it. Many, many times. Because here's Isaiah focusing on the omega point. But you see, this is not the end of the story. Because it's not just Isaiah that's focusing on this omega point. Centuries later, now you remember that, centuries later, this book spans centuries. Spanning centuries. You do not measure this book even in generations, not even in epochs. This spans millennia. This is of cosmic proportions. That's why, you know, you've got to be so careful. Never ever so reduce it. That we've forgotten the cosmic dimension of it. Because focused on exactly the same omega point as Isaiah is John sitting in Patmos. Because John is looking to that same omega point as is the Apostle Paul. You talk about, remember trigonometry? No. <laughs> you really are stupid as you look. <laughs> wonderful kind of focusing. Here's Isaiah. Here is John. Here is Paul. Here is the, these great giants of scripture. And they're focusing on the same ultimate point. You begin to see, again, in all the amazing variety of the Bible, there is this intrinsic, this internal coherence. There is this ultimate focus. And it is on the consummation of God's great plan. 
This is the book we handle. This is the scripture we share. This is the vision. So as we relook and as we reveal, isn't this very striking? Listen to, to, to Meredith Klein, who's a, 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 a wonderful kind of imaginative thinker when it comes to the scripture. Klein's stuff is wonderful. What he says is revealed in scripture, the consummating of heaven and earth is as much a direct miraculous act of God as the original act of creation. You cannot separate the beginning from the end. Keep that big picture in mind. And as you do it, well this is where, now listen, I'm sorry, you might need a couple of pair of pockets here. Because you've got your trifocals, never forget them. But also you'll need to bring out your bifocals sometimes too. Now, when you look through your bifocals, for instance, look through Isaiah's bifocals. Well, you're going to see Jerusalem as a historical reality. You're going to walk through the particularity of that city in the days of Uzziah, in the days of the kings of Israel, the kings of Ahaz. But as you look at that historical city, just with a flick of the eye, you know that you can also take in a new Jerusalem. An ultimate reality. Can I submit to you that these bifocals help you when you work your way through the prophets of Israel? That you're constantly taking seriously their particular historical situation they're addressing. But then with the movement of the eye, you can see the cosmic drama. Now think of the implications of this. Because we say, particularly in our Protestant tradition, we take the Bible seriously. Then I, it troubles me. Maybe I'm wrong in this. But then I hear, and, and I'm not questioning, and I'm in no way being nasty, cynical, judgmental. No way. But something stirs in me when I hear a well-meaning person sitting down beside somebody who's in trouble and say, you know, Jeremiah says that God says, I have plans for you. And when you pass through the waters, I now, I don't what they're teaching about God's purposes for individuals, I have no doubt. God does mean well. God primarily wants to bless. But you see that you. Who was the original you? See, this is where we struggle in English. If we were learning most other foreign languages, we would be able to tell the difference between you, masculine singular, or feminine singular, and you, masculine plural, or masculine uh, are feminine plural. This is, by the way, where Northern Ireland English does. Because in Belfast we've got you as an individual, and then you've got uses. <laughs> uses. Uses ones. Use ones. Uses. But you see, Jeremiah, that was God addressing corporate Israel. Now, in Christ, of course we have blessings. I'm not in any way questioning that. But doesn't it become all the richer when I can begin to see that through God's choice of Israel and a climactic, you know, a climaxing of that, or at least the first step towards the climaxing of that plan in Jesus, I, as an outsider, can be drawn in. You know, what should my attitude be 
when I begin to think about historical Israel and God's dealing with them. To me, it's one of profound gratitude, awe and wonder that I, a little islander from the Northwest Hemisphere, can be drawn into this majestic drama that's not yet over. And even listening to Isaiah, where through one lens I look to the devastation of life and exile, the horrors of Babylon, a completely alien culture around me, and yet I can move just with a slight movement of the pupil to see the hope of renewal, return. See how the prophet works. They always move from that particular to that universal. Never ever forget. That's why those two hands are so useful to you. Never let anybody minimize the dignity and the importance of the particularity of who you are, where you are, and when you are. But at the same time, never get so focused on that that you forget the universal hope. We are part of that big picture. You and I, we're going back to work on as part of that big picture. And so Isaiah lifts our eyes up. And what does he envisage? The ultimate new heaven, new, new earth. And he's so impressed, both John and Paul, that they take up the same idea. Do you see what these prophets do? These prophets lift us up, set us on their shoulders and say, look at the vision that lies ahead. So when we go home, think of that vision that we've been given. Not inward looking, belly button gazing, narcissistic inner sort of spirituality, but a vision of what God is going to do on a cosmic level. When we begin to explore that, interesting, and I'm not terribly always impressed by (coughs) statistics, but you read this for yourself. Creation is a theme more frequent in the oracles of Isaiah 40 to 55 than in any other prophet. The prophet who has the most to say about salvation has the most to say about recreation, renewal, the new heaven and the new earth. When you begin to look at it that way, God has a future in store. A future in store for the entire created order. Not just for human beings. And can I say this? And I say it very respectfully. And ask you to think about it. Have we at times become so fixated on the spiritual. That we have a lost vision. For what God is doing and will do for all things in creation. In terms of his renewal of a new heaven and a new earth. Can we come dangerously close to sort of almost a Gnostic, Greek, dualistic view where we so elevate the spiritual? Because every time you really hear somebody say your soul is more important than your body, that is pure undiluted Greek Gnosticism. Now, even, you you can hear sort of, you say that in many churches, you can hear the intake of breath. Of course our soul is more important. If you think with Greek dualistic eyes, you see, when you look through 
can I say just biblicalize? Biblicalize that you're not reading through a Greek lens. You see, the Bible, the Bible doesn't teach we have a soul. The Bible teaches we live as souls. And God breathed in and we became living nephishes. And an inseparable, inextricable part of being a living soul is having a body. And when you go home, just stand. I know you're not so cup to vanity, but look in a mirror and just think, I'm somebody. I'm somebody. And God's not going to just deal with something that's temporarily housed in me called my soul. But God is actually giving me the promise of a resurrection, a bodily resurrection. It struck me yesterday with Trevor and Janice as we walked through the, the memorial gardens there. Had you ever stopped to think what it's going to be like in that ultimate resurrection? You see, we get so spiritualized at times. Remember, built into the very, very fabric of even the Torah, God had said, look at the nature of the blessings he promised. Many of them are very, very material, very kind of earthly. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your, your rains in their season and the land will yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. But, but look, at what humanity has done. Look at what human greed, look at what human grasping, look at what human avarice has done. It has desecrated creation. And as Jared Manley Hopkins says, nor can foot feel be ensured. We've become alienated from it because we have bought in to a Greek emphasis on all that is important is just the spiritual. But this message is robustly holistic. Because if God gives up on creation, isn't that effectively acknowledging a defeat to Satan? For God can renew all things. That's why I'm inviting you to think a little bit differently. Think through that Hebrew lens. The lens that Jesus and Paul and John and, and Isaiah would have had. Look at the robustness of Isaiah's vision. You know, we go to Isaiah when we want to talk about the good news and the gospel. Rightly so. But look at his understanding. For Isaiah, it is not some narrow, narrow spiritual message. It is something that involves such an embracing and comprehensive vision. Look at, look at the, the, the imagery that runs through Isaiah. The divinely created new thing is described primarily in terms of often botanical growth. He's not afraid of these robust material images. Come with me just for a wee minute. Now, I wish we could. We, we, we can maybe be back by lunchtime. But I want to come stand on the Mount of Olives with me. And you look over you're looking over Moria, the Temple Mount. And you listen just to Isaiah. Just try to block out the traffic 
Blot out every sign of modernity. Block out that man who's pestering you to ride his camel at 50 shekels. <laughs> Just stand on this mountain. Listen to Isaiah. On this mountain, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich wine and rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. They're not going to be fighting over whether it's Ribena or the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people. You hear him? That's exactly what John says. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We have trusted in him. We have waited for him. And he has saved us. Oh, to stand on that mountain in that day and know then his plans are complete. Stand on that day, on this mountain, maybe this is our God. Oh, Lord, we waited. And you know, at times the waiting was hard. At times we didn't know what you were doing. At times we felt like, well, we were playing Scrabble. And we were only given a few tiles. And with those few tiles, we were trying to construct big words to defend you, to, to apologize for you, to explain you. Ah, listen, we had only half a dozen tiles. How could we do it with all our theology? But now we see you. This is our God. And you know the waiting has been worth it. The trusting has been now rewarded. This is our God and you have saved us. The waiting is all over. Never lose sight of that day. Get those bifocals out and see the reality of what's to come, that you look at this world as we know it. And yet know Isaiah is promising us, promising us, as John is, as Paul is, a new heaven and a new earth. It's a robust and a real hope. I create a new heaven and a new earth. Technically, the funny academics get, sometimes I think they've nothing else to do but make big words. And they come up with this big word, intertextuality. Basically, we all know what it is. We might not call it that technically. But intertextuality is when you're reading in one place and, oh, you make the link to another place. So here you're reading in Isaiah, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And then, what, centuries later? Pages later? What's John say in Revelation? He's lifted it straight out of Isaiah. That's not plagiarism. That's intertextuality. No, it's highlighting the fact, you see, of the intrinsic, the internal coherence and consistency of the entire Bible. This is the lovely thing. One bit never contradicts another. And you can see the whole through one verse. And you can see one verse in the light of the whole. Never ever separate these two. You see, for Isaiah, 
for John and for Paul, these guys weren't dreaming about floating about and, you know, playing the eternal game of golf or plucking their harps. This is the renewal of a new creation. Turn to Isaiah. Look at the prominence Hosea amongst the prophets gives to the relationship of creation to covenant. Where creation, very evident, particularly evident in Hosea, where you see that you know the natural order has been affected by human behaviours. As Christians, we're not escapists. I think we've got to be responsible about the world around us. No, we're not advocating Mother Earth. We believe in Father God. We're not replacing theology with ecology. But we're here. We're living on Earth. And daily we are praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On Earth. On Earth. We've got to take it seriously. Where the social order and the cosmic order are deeply interrelated. Where we see sin not only in the level of kind of the crackheads in the housing estate, but insidiously infiltrating the corporations, the multinationals, with their greed, with their avarice. And as Gecko said, you know, greed is good, greed is right. Greed reflects the evolutionary urge that's got us to where we are, as he addresses that crowd at Wall Street. We've got to address sin on that level too. But look at what Isaiah says. God says, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. These men have a wonderful vision. Look through the lens of Amos. Amos is simply mind-blowing. Particularly in terms of a social critique. But look, let Amos expand your vision as he talks about the nations of the earth and about the cosmos. And listen to Amos 9. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, he and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, who finds his vault upon the earth. There's an interesting bit. Now we can only touch on this, but let me introduce it to you. Amos is there giving us an insight into kind of the two-register cosmos that was quite common in the ancient world. Now, it's worth our while just thinking about this a minute or two to understand how their mind worked. And in their mind, and, and diagrams are very, very limited, very limited. So, you know, I'm only going to take a few tentative steps. These are not defin- this is not geometry. But it's a very, very tentative attempt to try to step into the richness of these men's world. Because they're conscious of what we're life going on, on on one plane. But then, for instance, Job, and very clearly Amos, was aware of a heavenly plane. A second plane. Not that they were, well, that they never interrelated. They did interrelate. Very much so. You see this very clearly in the opening passages of the book of Job. Very, very clearly. But you see the kind of the structure of their cosmos. There's this kind of earthly life. Where with Job, we have no access to the heavenly councils. We have no access to much of what's going on in heaven. And yet there's a relationship. 
there's an interrelationship between the two. That heaven's not just way up there. Like, you know, when the Russian cosmonaut came back and reported to Khrushchev that he'd been up there and couldn't see God. We get caught up sometimes in, in very slavish literalism. We say, oh, uh, the Bible's all about going up. But remember, going up, I can remember at school. Very often the teacher, Maxwell, come up. Coming up doesn't necessarily mean physically going up. Nothing to do with altitude. It's about approaching a greater one, an authority, a king of kings. Now, look at Revelation's vision, or Colossians' vision, Paul. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself just some spiritual aspect of life. No, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Where you begin to see as we journey through temple and tabernacle, what you've got on earth is but a replication of an ultimate heavenly temple. An ultimate heavenly truth. And what's going to happen when heaven comes to earth? Look through Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah says, The Lord who made the earth and who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Who enters into covenant even with the day and the night. The scriptures speak of a God regulating all of of creation. Not merely a mechanistic universe. We're not into the deism of, say for instance, the theology that undergirded Freemasonry. No, it's not. God's not that sort of micromanager of the hyper-Calvinist. But we do live in a creation that has so many interconnections, interrelationships. Even modern physics are telling us this. No one thing ever exists in isolation. And what we do impacts everything around us. Even down to the destruction of our world. We've seen yesterday the prophets speak of the pathos, of the pain, of God's heart being broken. When he looks, you know, uh, into the situation. This invitation through these prophets come and look up. And as we go home, can I give you three things just to think about as we anticipate what's to come and we look at the long range and ask, what am, I, what am I waiting for? And what am I offering people? Well, let me explore it this way. Are we sitting on something that we don't know how explosive it really is? Because God has promised us a liberation that is simply astounding. And how does Paul describe this to us? In pure Exodus terminology. When speaking about a creation that is longing and agonizing in torture, what does Paul say? The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Pure exodus language. Do you see the ultimate exodus? A greater than Moses in Jesus has come to inaugurate the ultimate liberation, which includes, in Romans 8, not only us as human beings, but 
the liberation of creation. We haven't seen anything of what God is actually capable of. And inextricably tied up to the liberation of creation, resurrection. Because tied in with this is the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits from the dead. And of course in Hebrew and, and ancient and Middle Eastern agricultural terminology, the first fruits is the first of a kind, the first in time, the first that's a guarantee of absolutely the full harvest that's to come. The first fruits, the down payment, they are a bone, they are parquet. God's down payment, God's guarantee, I've started something. Just wait, I will finish it. And I will finish it with that resurrection. And you find that's too much, you cross the road to the Arboretum and think, how can this possibly take place? It can't, unless you believe in the God who made all things in the first place. Because if God could raise Adam out of the dust, then he can surely raise a dead body at the general resurrection and restore and glorify. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. What a vision of, taken from the Roman world of the emperor coming. His parousia. And his people going out to meet him and then coming back into the town with him. This is the picture that we're given. A picture too of ultimate renewal. A renewal that will involve all of creation as we know. To discard or annihilate creation would surely be to admit to a failure of God's purposes. And that's why, can I say this to you now, and you think about this, just think about this, because I really do not want this to be misunderstood. But that God is more than just a redeemer of the individual. He will be the consummator of all his purposes in creation where all will become to his glory. And when we discover an old tutor of, of my John Murray born into the Hebrides dour Scottish Presbyterian not given to the kind of the ecstatic and the exuberant the Pentecostal but boy with it. John Murray writes, when we think of glorification, it is no narrow perspective that we entertain. It is a renewed cosmos, a new heaven and a new earth that we must think of in the context of the believer's glory. A cosmos delivered from all the consequence of sin in which there will be no more curse but in which, in which righteousness will have the complete possession and undisturbed habitation. And we will live in Emmanuel's land. As you read and journey through that Bible, let me ask something that, just to consider, just to consider. When in our Western tradition we've become so preoccupied with going up, Think, for instance, in the Exodus. God didn't liberate them to go up. He liberated them to go forth, to walk with him, 
and to serve him. And as I journey right through the Bible, I find a God who came down into that initial temple, earthly garden sanctuary called Eden. A God who came down onto Sinai. A God who came down into the Mishkan, into the tent, into the tabernacle. A God who came down to walk with them and lead them in the wilderness. A God who came down into the temple and dwelt with them when they were in houses of stone. He was in a house of stone. A God who came down when the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily among us. He walked with us. He talked with us. He lived in a village. A God who came down. A God who came down to indwell his people in the power, in the presence, in the person of his Holy Spirit. A God who comes down. You know, I go so far in my Bible meeting a God who comes down and I meet so many Christians who just tell me about going up. (laughs) Have I become so preoccupied at what's going to happen to me that I forget this is primarily a revelation of God? It is from beginning to end about God. And a God who as creator and as redeemer is giving us the most profound hope and assurance that one day we will be in Emmanuel's land when literally his will will be done and his kingdom will come on earth where the division between heaven and earth will be no more because we will live in a universal, as it were, temple a cosmic temple where there will be no need of a A temple as such, for we will live in an entire temple where his glory will fill all things, where the bells and the horses will become holy, where the cooking pots will become holy, and we will join with so many others saying, Kadosh, 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 holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. We have waited for him. This is our God. And he has saved us. We remember that time we were in White Lake. And we were encouraged. And we had to go back to where we were working. But now the wait is all over. Because your plan has come to its consummation. And when your vision gets a little bit cloudy. You maybe got a little bit of glaucoma. Sit on the shoulders of Isaiah and the prophets and enjoy the view. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, lift our eyes, lift us by means of these prophets and in their words may we hear your voice. And yeah, humanly at times we get, ah, we get lost in a myriad of interpretations. But listen, Rescue us, focus us, and help us to look to you, to your glory, and to the consummation of your great plan. Till then, will you keep us, provide for us, sustain us, give us the wisdom, the energy that we need. Through Jesus we pray.